0: Do in
1: the winter. Hello and welcome to The Fourth and these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva, and Gomatra. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Alistair Satchel. I'm a film and theatre maker based here on the island of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode I talk to Lucy Mackenzie. Lucy was brought up in Calgary at Calgary House. She was schooled away down south on the south coast of England whilst always dreaming of her home on Mull. Life took Lucy on quite a series of adventures, seeing her settle in Italy for over 30 years, only to return to the UK eventually, in, and eventually to Mull in 2005, where she's lived ever since. Lucy is a renowned gardener. Her garden at Lipnacleichia has been featured in several high-profile magazines and can be found in the new Island Gardens book by Jackie Bennett and Richard Hansen. I'll put a link to the book in the blog. Our conversation covers a vast terrain. We talk about her life, work and travels, and mentions are made to the Happy Valley murder case, which was dramatised in the film White Mischief, which, like me, if you've not come across it before, I'll put a link to the Wikipedia page about the story on the blog. I don't want to spoil this one for you, there's lots of surprises in this podcast. I recorded this podcast yesterday, on the 18th of October, and edited it last night, I managed to snatch an hour with Lucy to talk about her life whilst I was out driving a minibus for Turismara, taking visitors from the ferry at Krignyr to a boat trip at Alva Ferry to go out and see seal pups in the Treshnish Isles. When I got home, there was an email waiting for me from Lucy, and it detailed more stories that she'd remembered whilst out gardening, so I'll read these at the end of the podcast if you'd like to hear them. The order of the podcasts is a bit of a random thing. I've got several recordings on my drive waiting to be edited and shared with you, I'm sort of curating them in a way that flows thematically as it appears to me, so there's a rough sense of order to them. I hate that word, curate. <laughs> it's really annoying. What are you doing with your facial hair? Well, I'm curating a goatee. Oh, no. Anyway. The thing with bod- podcasts... podcasts What are podcasts, I don't want to know. Don't Google that. The thing with podcasts is that you can dip in and out of them in whichever order you so wish, so please feel free to pick and mix, obviously. Now... I'm chuffed to bits to say that this podcast has been sponsored by a new sponsor, who are Isle of Mull Cottages. Mull is a deservedly popular place for a holiday, and Isle of Mull Cottages have some really outstanding places to stay. They've got such a great range, there's something for everyone. They've really nice modern places with great views. They've also got older, stone cottages in the most beautiful locations, as well as larger houses, perfect for a family holiday, or maybe a gathering of friends. The great thing about booking a place with Isle of Mull Cottages is that they are a local business. They visit all their properties on a regular basis, so you know that what you're getting is going to be good. And with more than 100 places to choose from throughout the island, it means that all you need to do is enjoy planning your next stay and figuring out which of these stunning places to stay in. Have a look for yourself and visit www.isleofmullcottages.com. That's www.isleofmullcottages.com and have a look at their places. You'll also find heaps of great information about the island, too, which will help inspire a visit, no doubt. Without further ado, I give you Lucy Mackenzie. ask you to introduce yourself for the, the recording who who are you
0: <laughs> who am i uh or my i call myself up here lucy Mackenzie because that's my christian name and it's i mean my um maiden name and it's much more appropriate to go by a scottish name up here than not panitzon which is my married name because panitzon here nobody can pronounce and that doesn't mean anything and i like having a scottish name up here so i am lucy Mackenzie. I'm a widow. I was born and brought up 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 here and eventually I moved back out to Italy and as one does, I met somebody out there and married an Italian. So that's why I ended up with an Italian surname.
1: And uh, were you born on the island or were you born...
0: I was born... Uh, not actually physically on the island. Well, nobody is born on the island nowadays, are they? But in those days, I think people were actually possibly born on the island. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I was born in, uh, my parents were already living here because they bought Calgary the year before I was born. Uh, but I was born in Aberdeen, in the nursing home there. But uh, yes, I'm more or less born on the island in as much as we were living here.
1: Aye. So, your family were they in Aberdeenshire before they were here?
0: Mm. My parents were both Aberdonians, yes. Right.
1: In the city itself or outside? No,
0: outside, in Malata. So they moved here in 1947, and I was, no, 48, and I was born in 1949, so just made it as a movie. I think. Yes,
1: (laughs) without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. What was it it like growing up in, was Calgary House your... Yes,
0: it was absolutely lovely growing up here, it was wonderful, because we had so much freedom and everything was so wild, but it was probably a bit... um, Lonely, I was a very shy child, I was a very shy young person, I'm still actually quite shy. And I think it was growing up in such an isolated way because in those days there weren't parents that took you off to play groups and uh, activities and down um, to see you play with your friend or anything or play with any other children. You were just stuck there and that was the end of it. And since I didn't unfortunately go to school locally, I had very little contact with local children. Right. Did you ever go to school uh, in in Mal at all? No, we had governesses. Oh, really? Um, Unfortunately, that was the way it was in those days. Uh, I think, chiefly, my parents were worried I might get a Scottish accent. (gasps) (laughs) God! I might have also made some friends.
1: (laughs) I think you've done pretty well since, though, in fairness.
0: uh, uh, So, were you the only child in the family? No, we had two brothers. But uh, again, my, my elder brother was sent to boarding school in England at the age of seven. I was sent at the age of ten. Right. And so we met up in the holidays. Right. And we had a series of governesses who'd. Like people do a bit nowadays, but much more then, would come rushing up the mall to be governess to a, a family because it sounded so romantic. But then, when they discovered that, uh, they had, that there was no public transport, nowhere to go, yeah. no cinema, nothing to do, they buggered off. Yeah. So, we ended up having an, an awful lot of different governesses.
1: Are there any of them that stick in your memory at all that were, were particularly.? They
0: didn't stick around long, long enough to stick in my memory. Really? I remember. I remember an Australian. One who's quite nice from Perth, Australia. So I was remember I think Perth, Australia, I remember, but we did have a long series of government. I did actually do a few months schooling with uh, um, Ailey McKenzie, who was uh, Alison Bartholomew's mother, who right, okay. lived at Beer with Commander McKenzie, mm-hmm. whose parents had originally owned Calgary House. And we used to go for, I think, Guy Longer, I think, but several several months, possibly even a year, we used to walk down there to have lessons every day and at that point vehicle was just a little bungalow type cottage and there was a little ladder which disappeared up into a loft where the bedroom was and I used to be absolutely fascinated when Ailey used to, Mrs Mackenzie used to occasionally disappear up the ladder, long to go up the ladder and see what was the at the end of it.
1: Did you ever get a chance to go up no. in the end? <laughs> Ooh, still a mystery. No,
0: I... so we did used to work, but again, yeah, we probably, I was probably aged five, my brother eight, and we would walk. We walked down there quite happily.
1: So, what did your parents do? What was what were their uh, my life?
0: father was retired. My father was an awful lot older than my mother. He was retired from the army, right? And uh, he was um, had some diplomatic job in Canada too for oh, right. many years. And uh, but he owned a, he owned Downtime Farm, ah, right. but uh, it was a very unpractical thing. You know, he didn't do much physical farming himself he enjoyed a, far, applied a farm manager and farming it was i think it always probably always lost money mm-hmm. but basically he he farmed because he liked doing that but he was retired i was he was 60 i think when i was born so
1: goodness wow so had he seen the first world war as well though? yeah
0: he, he fought in both wars he was one of the organizers of a retreat at dunkirk really the evacuation of Dunkirk in the downstairs uh, toilet all the papers from saying, giving the orders for the evacuation of Dunkirk. Goodness me. Did he ever talk about the experiences? Never, yeah. ever, ever, ever. I learnt more about my father's war history from his obituaries than I did from him. Really, That generation, I think, never talked about the war. We can understand why. Yeah, you can understand why. L- really young men. Yes, uh, yeah. yes it was... You know, my uncles died in the Somme and oh God. Uh, yeah it was just uh, he never ever ever mentioned it
1: oh, over a hundred years later from the Somme that still word still chills yeah, doesn't yeah. it it really yeah. is quite something um, and did he um, w- where was he in the first world war was he in, in Belgium or was he
0: I don't know I, I know very little I really know very little he was, um, he was wounded in both wars and spent part of both wars in convalescence and uh but I know very little about what he did. But I do know that he was uh, he and he was out in the Somme too, because I found we found his old diaries and it's it's written in pencil, so it's difficult to write. But I did find the entry. Uh, it was just it was so. I suppose you had to be sort of laconic about it. Um, yes. Heard that uh, Sloper's been injured. Went to look for him. Uh, spent the whole day searching. Couldn't find him. Came back, and the next day, um, commanders lent me his motorbike. Went back again. Found uh, found where Sloper was, but he was already dead. You know, just literally like that. I mean, because you had to be—I suppose you had to be like that because otherwise you'd have just gone into meltdown, wouldn't you? Totally, yeah.
1: Extraordinary. And uh, your mother—what was what's your mother's story? If you don't mind me asking.
0: My mother. Well, again, she she married. Obviously, she was much younger than my father, but she met him just after the end of the war, I think. And she was actually, uh, she—I think she'd lost her fiancé in 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 the war. Uh, the second war obviously yeah. and uh, she, she'd married somebody else on the rebound and he was out in germany i think for 11 months at the stretch uh-huh. and during that time she met my father and my elder brother arrived and uh she filed when her husband came back she filed for divorce yes. and uh and he contested her husband contested it and she said look you've been away for 11 months there's a baby here, you must allow it. So I think it was in those days, you know, divorce was something. And they were next door neighbours to the royal family, and they used to stalk and shoot to the royal family, and the royal family used to stalk with them. And I think it was a huge scandal. Really? And I think, well, uh, that was one of the they had to sell the estate because there was no money left. I think my great grandfather made an awful lot of money out, came from modest origins, went out to India. As a midshipman, um, left the ship and uh, became, went into merchant, went indigo, I think, and made an awful lot of money, huge amount of money in India. Came back and made some very good investments here and bought the, the estate of Glenmick, built a huge house and had a big stalking estate and everything. So he was a very successful businessman, but uh, the next two generations did nothing but spend all the money. <laughs> And my father was the last of a family of seven, six, something, to inherit because everybody else had died. I was in the war or somewhere, and by by the time it got to him, there was no money left at all. In fact, my eldest aunt, uh, Aunt Lucy, after who I'm named, was born in 1894, which sounds amazing. I mean, I know I'm not young, but still, but I could have an aunt uh, because she was 20 years older than my father. And she married... Um, uh, Lord Hay. You never. Know um, have you heard of a um, White Mischief?
1: No, I don't know that. And
0: that the scandal in Kenya when uh, Jocelyn Errol was shot. It was a huge we scandal. You don't know anything about that. Uh, Happy Valley. You've heard of a Happy yeah, Valley in yeah, Kenya? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was all centered around my first cousin. Amazingly, because <laughs> we're talking a long way back. But since he was born, yes. just just. Uh, uh, about the same time, I, my, my father must have been, yeah, very, very small child, when he was born. Uh, he was the uh, centre of that. He was Jocelyn Earl, who was uh, killed in the, in the Happy Valley scandal. Huge scandal. Oh, goodness. Uh, there was a, a film made called White Mischief, which was very, very popular about that. He had been having an affair with somebody's wife, and uh, he, he got himself killed anyway. Goodness. Nobody quite knew how. Anyway, so um, my mother met my father, and they had the Sylvia estate, and so we, my father went and looked at various houses around Scotland, and in fact, among his letters, there's was a letter saying, well, the day he came to see it here, and he said um, something about, Yes, he looked several houses in Mull actually, and he said that he saw this one, and he put in an offer for half what they were asking. I think they were asking fourteen thousand. He put an offer for seven thousand and went away, not thinking any more of it. And the next thing he knew, he knew it was been accepted, because uh, the house, I think, had been empty for seven years because right. it was the Mornish Estate was broken up and made. Uh, it was bought by the Department of Agriculture and broken up into small holdings, which are all those little houses scattered down the Calyque Road. Uh, the, the main farmhouse was Sunipal, not Calgary Farm. Farm. It was Sunipal, and in fact, uh, Morag showed me once that they'd sh- uh, broken, they'd knocked down the back of the house because they wanted to make more, more or less the same size as the other ones when they were them off small holdings. They didn't want to have one bigger small holding with the other one. That's why we knocked down the back of the house. And, uh, but the estate was split up and uh, Calgary was left with just 27 acres, which is what it's got today. And I think it, I think it remained empty between 1940 and my father buying it in 1948. I've, uh, my brother and I can't find any record of anybody else in the middle, so I should think it was in a pretty ghastly state when he bought it. And I know my mother spent quite a long time in the Western Isles Hotel while they were trying to patch the house up before she could move in, pregnant with me and... uh, they patched the house up and made it made it habitable. It's for sale again now, you know. Oh. Apparently, it's under offer. Oh, right. it's always interesting. We shall to see. see. Yeah. My brother was actually quite interested, but I think there were uh, huge problems.
1: Yeah, oh, I'm, yeah. Our friends have been. Oh. Um, caretakers there in the past the, the, the previous owners were always very good at employing local people to be caretakers there and I think there, are, yeah, there have been issues um, with, with damp and ingress of water and render and
0: More so. than damp, I think it's just wet, yeah. running running water yeah. yeah, but I hope it goes to I, I do hope somebody goes and lives there and it's not just a, yeah. a holiday home, abandoned three quarters of the year Well
1: that would be fantastic if it was Yeah, Because it's, l- it's such
0: a lovely house
1: what are your memories of growing up in the house? There, is there anything that stands...?
0: Oh, it was a lovely house to be in because there was a staircase at the back, staircase up uh, front, so you could run round, tear around in circles and, uh, and go up in the roof. And the roof, was, uh, the roof space was uh, full of bees. Really? Yeah, there were massive and massive. I mean, you walked on a carpet of about three inches of bees like this because my father had experts in, but they'd never managed to get rid of these bees without taking off the roof. Now they have got rid of the bees. I don't know who, yeah. which of the subsequent owners got rid of it. So you crunch over these bees and go up on the roof. But uh, the best thing was, apart from that, you could go up on a hill behind because, yeah. uh, and you could, we could go wherever we wanted. Nobody was bothered about us something happening to us but uh, we could go boating so we had a boat down the bay from when I was fairly small and we went uh, lobster fishing every day and we just that's what we spent the whole summer doing. That's fantastic. That's why I listened, listening to Nick Turnbull and I was sort of yeah. linking in so uh, yeah, from the time we got our first little boat, Tamarisk, a little rowing dinghy, a little wooden rowing dinghy when my brother, older brother was 10 I was 7 and two creels and off we went. And nobody said, uh, we, had, we didn't have proper life jackets, we had sort of jackets, uh, our jackets had sort of wings, inflatable wings in the side, but of course we never inflated them, and we never did up jackets, so it wasn't much good. And nobody seemed to bother about us, you know, it was just, don't be late for lunch, that was the end of it. Can you imagine letting your son uh, go go off of a whole morning (laughs) on a couple of creels? Well,
1: uh, uh, that's, Gordy Turnbull's talked about that as well, of the things that they got up to in boats, Kenny and him, as as kids. And it's like, yeah, he he wouldn't let his own kids do it now. And
0: and yet it it was was much better. It was a much better upbringing. It's just everybody's so obsessed now, health and safety and all the rest of it. But it was wonderful. Good. off we rode in the morning with our creels and rode round and round, trying to decide where to, to drop from, because we didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, Commander Mackenzie had built down to the, uh, below his boat, down to the rocks, uh, a wonderful swing bridge. Uh, he built it all by hand, it was absolutely brilliant. So you could get down to your, you didn't have to pull the, your dinghy up, you had it on a running rope, you could just walk down over his swinging bridge. It was was amazing, Uh, it was a really brilliant feat and then unfortunately it was allowed to fall to pieces. So there was nothing left of it now. But uh, off we went down over the swinging bridge and pulled in our dinghy and did all the right knots and and rode off. And there were, I think there were a lot more, well there were definitely more lobsters when we started doing it. when when we finished when we were teenagers because we just when we had half a dozen creels we'd come home with one two three lobsters a day and (laughs) it's fantastic uh, we did used to do very well and i i noticed uh, nick turnbull talking about the big boats coming down from malague yes occasionally his big boats would come put a whole string of pots in the front of the bay and we'd get over i all our lobsters but uh but we used to get a lot of lobsters a lot of crabs and we bait them if we got mackerel, we baited with mackerel because the uh, cuddies which you caught more uh, easier, were not very good for bait because they were too soft. For not just went through them, but chiefly we used to go and shoot rabbits on the on the on the in the evening, and we baited them with rabbit,
1: and that worked well.
0: Yeah, oh, that worked very well because the rabbit stuck in well, oh. and you could get about six joints out of a rabbit. Two four joints, two hind joints and, uh, and a middle bit yeah. and if you were pushed for it you'd get the uh, you could put the head two if I- that way around. I think, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's the way um, people used to uh, fish for eels, I believe, was with horses' heads. With horses' heads? Yeah, you'd put a horse's head in the water and the eels would go in and burrow into it, and you'd bring the horse head up and get your eels. Which. <laughs> <laughs> rather not. Did anyone teach you how to do that, or just, just a couple uh, of creels, on you go?
0: Well, I remember the first time we just rode round and round the bay when we were peering over the side, when we had to drop these creels, and eventually we dropped them in a not very suitable place out by the pier. And the next day, we got two crabs, two brown crabs. We were so pleased with ourselves. Yeah. And eventually, we worked out the better places to get them. Uh, um, when, we went, it, when we got a bigger boat, when we were a bit older, we had a bigger boat for an outboard boater so we could get even outside the bay. Yeah. But for a rowing boat, we were just in the bay and we'd row over to the pier or go down to um, 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 Lannisker. Okay. You know, Lannisker's that, that um, reef. Halfway down the left-hand side of Calgary Bay, landscape okay. Caslanskaia so was a good place for, for lobsters, um, but sometimes, you know, it was. It'd be quite rough, and it'd be yeah. quite. Uh, it'd be quite a big swell. It'd be sucking us in against the rocks, and I used to get quite scared. But I couldn't say anything because my brothers, you know, I couldn't admit that my brother I <laughs> was scared, and it was only a few years ago and he admitted to me that he got pretty scared too but he couldn't admit he was scared either so both of us saying yeah we're going a bit closer oh a bit closer yeah don't worry about my way going a bit closer oh, and goodness. both of us were absolutely terrified
1: <laughs> that's yeah uh, that wouldn't have been me i would have been over the side yes. being sick <laughs> gosh
0: no it was it was love it was wonderful so the whole morning in the summer I was spent uh, spent um lobster creeling and uh in the afternoon up in the hill or filling around with our bicycles or Down the beach.
1: When you went to school, was, it, was school quite nice to have contact with other folk, or was it quite...
0: Uh, not at the beginning, not when I was sent first to boarding school, because I did, simply didn't know how to behave with others, because having two brothers, I only knew how to behave with other boys, which yeah. um, they beat me up, or I beat them up, basically. That yeah. was what they ended up, and I discovered you can't do that with girls. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you were top dog then, basically. So I, was,
0: I, was a, I was a bit hopeless at my first school, I, was, I think for... I was only there for two years, but I mean, can you imagine my parents living on the Isle of mull sent me to school on the coast on the Sussex coast. Oh my, that's miles away. I mean, can you imagine? I, I it's just amazing. It's a good. Cooden Beach. Oh
1: my
0: goodness. Oh. I mean, they made our lives so complicated. Complications of getting us up and down from these schools and across yeah. London, and. Oh, yeah. uh, it was a, a total nightmare. We could practically never come back for half term because, you know, obviously, no, we didn't, did never come back for half term. Occasionally, our parents would get down to see us because you do not you got two week half term for us with we two weekends off when we could go home or see people during the term. But you know, it was just impossible. Why couldn't we have been sent? If we had to go, if we had to be sent to, to boarding school. Why couldn't they send us to a Scottish one? There's plenty of practical good schools in yeah. Perthshire and everything. Yeah. No, Cooten Beach, crikey, beggar's belief what do you
1: remember of the journeys there were they kind of
0: endless because you went the sleeper and then somebody some friend or some a company called Universal Ants which did sort of ferrying of children and Universal you know, Ants yes that's so amazing a, a company in London that sort of you know looked after people uh, they'd pick you up off a train and they'd take you around London and you'd eat um, you'd have bacon and eggs for lunch in a Lance Corner House and then they'd shovel you off the train, another train and off you'd go to Cooten Beach or where subsequently I went to the second school I went to was in Seven Oaks, but it wasn't much closer. Mm-hmm. It was a total nightmare journey. It was, how can and very expensive, of course, because the schools were very expensive and the travel's very expensive and universal arts When we, we were spent our whole lives being told we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that because was, our schools were so expensive and we'd think, Well Imagine we don't in, want to go our schools, to our school. So yeah. <laughs> fact, my brother, who um, he he was a, a black sheep of a family because he was the first son of an old Etonian, not to get into Eton. Ooh. So my elder brother, terrible, oh, the scandal. So he went to a school called Stowe. Oh, And he he created absolute mayhem. He was still And at the age of about 15, he had a terrific talking to my father saying, if you don't pull up your socks and behave, I'll take you away from Stowe and I'll send you to Oban High. And he said, oh, I'd really love that. (laughs) My father couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe that somebody could prefer to go to Oban High rather than to a posh boarding school. in fact, he left school as soon as he could because he was just absolutely hopeless he could pass in exams and has been very successful in life thereafter. But it was just completely wrong for him, as it was pretty wrong for me. What does your brother do now? What, what did he do? He sort of does things with property and down in Cornwall. He's, um, he's, he's done very well. Yeah, that's, that's why he was able to think about buying Calgary House. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, my other brother's out in uh, also does things for property. My other brother's out in San Diego, really? and he he builds on uh, contaminated sites. In other words, he buys a old chemical factory or whatever, cleans them up, and then builds on them. So I think it's quite sort of niche yeah. things. He's done well too.
1: From uh, finishing boarding school, you where, where, did you do finishing school or anything like that at all? Is that um, something that existed at the time?
0: Almost. Yeah, it's a sort of Mary Poppins <laughs> the style. Yeah, Miss. One would do. And I worked in London for a bit. No, yeah. where I go? I, woke, I went. first. No, first I went to Paris. Oh, what did you do in Paris? Um, Dressmaking and design, all really? strange things. Yes. So do you speak really? fluent French as well? I did speak French. Um, yeah, I, c- I, I nice. can just about communicate to the B&Bs this morning. The French ones i got at the moment. I can't speak a word of English. Oh, and awesome. we do manage to... I have managed to send them on our journeys and book them yeah. into places. But uh, no, I, it, when I learned Italian, my French kind of went out the window. But know I, I did spend eight months in Paris. And oh, no, it, but Paris, was that was fun. It was much more, more fun being in England. Then I, I came back to London, but I just... Again, I sort of... I just didn't enjoy the life there, I just didn't, I I worked in various age. I think I was a sort of temp and I worked in various And I worked in an advertising agency but I just didn't enjoy the the scene I was caught up in because I was inevitably caught up in the, um, well I was a a sort of debutante, I have to confess, and that got got me into a a scene that I really, really, really didn't enjoy and then between ex-school friends and that scene I ended up a life I wasn't enjoying at all, so that's when I went out to Rome.
1: What What was it about that life that you didn't enjoy? Was it this kind of f- the shallowness of it, or was yes. it <laughs> basically? <laughs>
0: yeah. It was all this sort of hunting, shooting, and fishing thing, which is not really me, and uh, rushing off to always house parties at the weekend and everything. And I, I just didn't enjoy it, so I went out to Rome, and that's more or less why my so- Italian part. My life
1: started. What was the what was the catalyst beyond <clears throat> beyond not enjoying that scene? What was what made you go to Rome specifically?
0: Um, well, I wanted to go abroad. My mother had to, she'd also wanted to go abroad when she was young, and it had been all fixed. She was going to Rome, and then the war broke out, and she couldn't go. And so she encouraged me to go to Rome because it had always been her dream. And so I set off for Rome. Wow. I found a what did I get a job? I found a, You never know, used to have the announcements in the front of all all the small announcements in front of the Times. I uh, got, got a job for Vas as a chauffeur's companion to an Australian woman with a 14-year-old son, which was totally ridiculous. I'd just taken my driving test in the Isle of Mull, and here was me uh, setting off to be a chauffeur's uh, companion in, in Rome, of all places. Oh my but uh, in fact, I never got to drive a car because the woman took one le- look at me and uh, decided she didn't like me and oh. said you had three days to leave my house. I don't know why she didn't like me, because in those days I was quite shy. I mean, I can imagine people not liking me now, but in those days I was really quite sort of shy and unobtrusive, and I wouldn't have said the wrong things or got in the way like I would now. Um, And so I found a job as an au pair with a family who actually spoke French. So I ended up speaking French the whole time because I really spoke it. And so after a few months I found another job down in in Calabria, you know, right in the toe. And in those days Calabria was really un, undeveloped. I mean now, you know, is all huge hotels and everybody goes down there. But this was the first hotel in Tropea, which is the sort of main tourist centre now, I think. It was the first hotel that ever a uh, tourist hotel was opened there on the beach. Mm-hmm. And it was Calabria was amazingly primitive in those days. Really amazingly primitive. Because it wasn't—it was just another world, you know. It was still uh, all the men going around on donkeys, the woman walking along behind with uh, carrying everything on her head and everything. Uh, it was extraordinary. What period was that? Was it in the sixties? No, no. it meant well. I won't have seventies. So I must have been eight. Yeah. Well, I suppose it was. Yes. I must have been eighteen. I was born in forty-nine. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so it was late sixties and so I worked in this hotel and we were forbidden in fact to wear trousers Any, I think it was me and another foreigner at hotels because uh, we were forbidden to wear skirts we had to wear trousers because so as not to show our legs and I remember once uh, if we went out of a hotel because hotels down the beach And I remember once in the evening everybody was going up to some festa in some village Mm -hmm. and I was wearing a skirt and I just tagged along and the next day the road above a hotel was lined of men looking down they'd seen this foreign girl with her legs, legs. Goodness it was me. amazing i got in terrible trouble for hotel managers that was really really because everything was really primitive down there in those days it was lovely
1: what um what were the kind of festas and things like that because that, that's something that they had really
0: lovely really old old style village uh festas but again the men would walk down one street, to the side of the street, and the girls would walk down the other. And you, unless you were officially engaged, which would normally be arranged by the family, you couldn't be seen with in, with uh, somebody of the opposite sex. It was very much segregated. So I spent I spent the whole summer down there, and I came well, came back. To, I came back to England for a bit, and I went to Rome and uh, started working. No, I went to I went to Florence. First, wow. I worked in Florence. First, what was
1: Florence like? And there was somewhere I've always wanted to go. Well, Florence
0: something. was lovely. I've always, I've always loved Florence, but it was very, very hard to find a job that uh, paid the rent. Basically, oh, sure. it was uh, I had a possible time working in Florence. I was really, I know. Mean, uh, I remember I shared a flat with friends, and literally we used to, what did we, we, we ate boiled eggs or ricotta. or... We couldn't even afford mozzarella or something that was a bit out of it. It was just beyond our budget. We lived on nothing. Mm. It was uh, starvation that and uh, we just didn't have any money at all and so eventually i my mother again looking in the times announcements, saw that Valentino a dressmaker was looking for an assistant down in Rome and uh, so she told me about this. so I trottled off down to Rome and got the job there, Goodness and me. Rome was much it was much. Uh, the salary l- looked pretty good, but in fact it wasn't so quite that good because Rome was much more expensive than Florence. But still, at least it was a, a living wage, and so I, that's when I started off living in Rome. Goodness me!
1: And so, were you there, kind of at the dawn of Valentino's career, or were you?
0: Uh, he was already very much established. I mean, he's been going on forever. He's, he's amazing. I saw a photograph of him the other day. This is what forty years ago, forty, fifty, six. So I was twenty. I was 20, 20, 40 years ago. I saw a photograph of me the other day that looks exactly identical. God knows how many facelifts he'd had in the meantime. He's absolutely amazing. Wow. He's uh, he's just sort of cast in stone. Wow. Um, what do you think it
1: was about Valentino that made him... He, his dresses
0: were amazing. He was absolutely amazing. I mean, especially in those, those days when they had these wonderful... Ball gowns and wedding dresses and everything—they were really beautiful. He was—he was brilliant. He was totally brilliant. Uh, he made the most wonderful clothes, but he was very, very difficult man. Goodness me! Uh, screaming hysterics and all these dogs and—and uh, and I was trying to run his house, his dogs and his um, servants and everything in his villa. And it was absolutely impossible. Every time a dog became fashionable, because even more than in britain fashion you know, dogs have fashions he'd get that dog and then the next one would come along and that dog would be cast aside so the whole villa was surrounded by different areas for the different dogs because that great dane would have definitely gone eating the chihuahua and the chihuahua would have it was an absolute nightmare <laughs> keeping yeah. them all separated uh, there's dozens of these dogs and he had this uh, his wonderful old mother who was Basically, you know, she was very, very humble stock, and now there she was uh, elevated to with the mother of Valentino, so living up there. And I remember one day, um, the Major Dormer, Major, how do you say it in English? Major, Major Dormer Major was saying to me, but uh, Valentino had looked out of a window and he'd seen these funny green things coming up in his borders. What are these green things on my borders? Oh, your mother's been planting spinach <laughs> <Best> flower borders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, she was basically a, a little country woman apart and she couldn't yeah. imagine why a space of being wasted between these silly flowers. and you know, then you had to put some spinach in there and a carrot that's fine.
1: That's very practical.
0: Uh, <laughs> and he was, uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. How long
1: were you with Valentino for?
0: About a year. And then I, I moved on to another company. I worked for American Express. And then I worked for uh, an American. And then uh, when I met my husband, we moved out of Rome, just outside Rome. And uh, I, I stopped working officially right. and started trying to put a garden and a house in order. Ah,
1: so gardening was a thing even then?
0: Well, yeah, sort of hacking away at the ground. And
1: can you talk a little bit about your husband? How did you meet him?
0: Uh, just at a party, as usual, friend's house. And uh, so that way, I settled down to a. It was fun at first, not to, uh, not to be working properly. Properly, you know, wasn't always been scrabbling to try and pay the rent and do everything. Yeah. And it was, good, but uh, I got bored. Yeah. What,
1: what I the... need to be active. Yeah, I, mean, I can see that. <laughs> and just
0: running a house and getting a garden sorted and everything and. And then, so I started when when I got a horse. and I started uh, when when my daughter was born, and she yeah. started riding, and I think I started teaching. No, before she even started riding, I started teaching uh, kids on ponies and doing some crafts and everything. I'd always wanted to ride. I'd always wanted to ride as a child, desperately. I'd, and we could perfectly well kept a pony at Calgary. It wasn't exactly, you know, I only need some sort of rough little thing that I could jump on. But no. It, we couldn't possibly have a pony because our schools cost so much <laughs> oh, gosh. and so I, I have ridden occasionally with friends or at uh, school or something and then uh, I started riding seriously when when I was married and I always hoped that my daughter would ride because that's what I was always wanted to do and in fact from the moment she could she first saw horses never anything else she wanted to do in life it's just what she's always only wanted to do. It. And she's done very, very well with horses assistance She's since. done very well. I mean, she's got her own yard now down in Gloucestershire and 23 boxes riding for a lot of people. She was r- riding for the what? Italian team as well, wasn't she? She is part of it. She's, uh, well, as long as she's got the right horse at the right moment, she rides. Uh, she missed out on the World Championships this summer because she, um, why? It was a horse had done something and she missed out in the last Olympics mm. because she broke her collarbone. But generally she gets, if it's a team, she... If, if all's going well, she's on it.
1: And if you don't mind me asking, what, what did your husband do?
0: He was in aviation. Um, he, he, I don't know, he immatriculated planes. I know, if you've got to buy a private plane, it has to be all sort of tested before you can fly it or something. And uh, he designed and built some small private airports. And he had a distributor, a distributor for aircraft fuel down on Ciampino Airport. And so it was all to do with, really he loved planes and boats and things. Fantastic. Not exactly my sort of thing, but it's fun. So what,
1: what, what took you to New York then?
0: Uh, that was well, that was a long time earlier. Right, well, <laughs> you got to put everything in. That was uh, when I was working in Florence. Still, yeah, that was the last bit of my working in Florence when I was. Uh, I I started working for a shoe company. Well, I I met a guy who had a shoe company, and I started working for him. And um, I was with we were together, as a as business and personal relationship mm-hmm. for three years. And we so we made shoes in Italy, and we sold them in America. Gosh. So we went backwards and forwards. Thanks.
1: And where were you living in New York?
0: Uh, just down from the Empire State Buildings. We had we had offices wow. in the Empire State Building.
1: Goodness me! Really? Yeah. Was that a, a, a pleasure or a nuisance?
0: No, it was uh, quite fun. Yeah. I, I liked it. Yeah, looked out the window and all these teeny little things miles below your cars, yeah. and uh, I quite liked. I don't like cities. I've never liked cities, but I did quite like New York because yeah. in those days anyway, it was more like a lot of villages attached together. Yeah. Sure you go to different areas, and it was yeah, quite dark to New York. And we used to travel around the States a lot, but as I say, we never saw anything. We just saw airports and, and convention centers with shoe shows. So, But uh, for three years, we did backwards and forwards until we, our relationship fell apart. So at that point, I quit out and went and spent the summer backpacking around Greece and then went back to Gosh. Florence.
1: So you are quite young at that point as well.
0: Yeah, I was 24 when we left, uh, when Larry and I split up. And I was 26 when I met Georgia, and I think we married when I was about, about 29, 30. Gosh, right. and I But I still used to, because the house, my father died in 1973, and the house was sold in, 19, my mother sold the house in 1975. But I still used to come back here most years. I uh, spent a couple of Christmases with uh, uh Profumos who, you know, Philip Profumo bought the house mm-hmm. and then when Victoria was born we used to come back, uh, when she was about four we used to come back every summer and spend Gosh. a couple of weeks here.
1: So the Perfumos were here as well, I'd forgotten about that.
0: Yeah, Philip Perfumo, right, exactly. the brother of John Perfumo, who was otherwise inclined, uh, differently inclined to his brother and... Yes. Um, uh, had Lots of a had a friend well yeah no he had a friend who uh a male friend mm-hmm. who liked doing up houses so philip Fumau obviously had an awful lot of money so he'd buy big houses for his friend to do up so calgary was uh, from being rather shabby and holes in the carpets and everything in our day became looked a bit like eaton square you know little checks and stripes and flowers and sprigs all over the place which wasn't quite uh Still, so they were very, very fond of the house, and they came up quite a lot. And then it was sold. After that, it was sold to um, Long Lumet, who was a uh, French-Swiss guy. I don't know if you ever came across him. No. They again came up on holiday, and then that went wrong too, because I think his wife's mother was murdered in Paris, and then and she went a bit funny, and they, that their relationship fell apart, and it was and so they sold it, and that was when the Kelseys bought it. Right. So it's changed hands several times since our days. Yeah.
1: The majority of your adult life was spent in Italy then?
0: Yeah, from basically 32 years I was in Italy. What, what would you say the kind of advantages of... Which isn't the majority now, unfortunately. <laughs> but it was the majority when I came sure. back here.
1: It is <laughs> um, what would you say that the, 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 the thing about Italy was? What, what kept you in Italy?
0: I, I really like the vibe in Italy. Yeah. People are, everything's a bit easier, and people are a bit more laid-back, and, um, you get, you get round things. Sometimes here it seems to be bonkers that everything's got to be done by the book. If we've got to obey that law, not only will we obey it 100%, we'll obey it 120%. That's why we're so hopeless in the the, the EU. Because everybody else, we make this law and everybody says, right, we'll we'll, we'll do that and we'll do that and we'll do justice. No, even if it absolutely clobbers us, we've got to absolutely obey it. Oh, there's no flexibility. Uh Italians are much more flexible. Oh come on, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll do it this way. We'll, we'll invent something, we'll we'll fix that, we'll get around it. Uh save bu Italian bureaucracy used to send me crazy, but British bureaucracy is probably worse. Yeah. It, only you can usually find somebody at the end of a line or at the end of a phone who'll explain things here. And Italian bureaucracy you've got more to it's more difficult to find out. It's more labyrinthful. And of course i uh, People are just a bit more laid back, a bit happier. I think I'm a bit happier. A bit. I like the food. Yeah, the food's amazing. Not crazy about British food, generally speaking. <laughs> <laughs> <know>. and, uh, <laughs> Some of it's okay.
1: The really odd steak pie here isn't there. No. Aww.
0: In Italy, the, um, the food tradition comes from the bottom. If you want to know how to go make a, a good dish, you go and ask the, the, the woman in the grocery shop or the farmer's wife or the woman in the market or everything. Here, it all filters down from the middle classes, which is not that's that's not be. Although in
1: Scotland, I, in our family, certainly, uh, we have a book called the Glasgow School of Cookery Cookbook. I don't know if you know that at all. I've heard of it. it's phenomenal it's got so many kind of uh brilliant dishes and like really simple cookery and um <clears throat> quite a lot of people went to dough school um and there was like a uh, you know a lot of women, young women certainly went to dough school for catering and things like that and my family certainly and uh, so the, that was one of the key texts uh, there as well and that's you know recipes for sheepseeds broth and things like that in there and potted heed and all these kind of poor 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 people meals um and so that, that I think there's there's something of that that's, that's from the bottom up in that book. Um, and that's, you know, when I went to university, my mum gave me a, a copy of that to go and, and I learned how to cook from it. So I learned how to do a roux from my mum for making macaroni cheese. But everything else is pretty much from uh, the Glasgow School of Cookery Cookbook and Ken Holm's Hot Walk. Which is one of my favourite books still to this day. Oh, I love that book. So, but yeah, Italian food is, I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I mean, I love food, but as you can tell, uh, but I really, really want to go to Italy to try kind of uh, Italian food in in, in Italy and be, yeah, quite remarkable.
0: I mean, Italy's got, well, Scotland's got, I mean, Scotland's got mountains and uh, a bit of skiing and, uh, and the sea and things too, and Italy has everything. Just like here, you know, you can go and ski in an hour or two and you can go and swim in an hour or two and uh, you can climb a mountain. There's, there's a lot of... Uh, being long and narrow, a bit like Britain, there is a lot of variation in, uh, in, in scenery and, uh, and topological. It's, it's, it's a very varied country. There's an awful lot there. So you came back to, to
1: Britain. Uh, but what, If you don't mind me asking, what was the catalyst for coming oh. home?
0: Giorgio died, ooh, ages ago. (laughs) My goodness, it makes me sound... uh, Doria was eight, so he died. And and uh, and we stayed on... We were thinking of coming back almost straight away, but we came back to look for a house in England, uh, for a month over one Christmas. It just happened to be one of those months when the mist was down every day and it was freezing cold, and uh, I thought, oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> so we, we stayed on for another... So we decided to wait until she'd finished school and come back for university. But in fact, we came back two years earlier, um, because chiefly because of various reasons. I, I decided I wanted to come back. I, I'd had enough. I wanted to come back to Scotland. I desperately wanted to come back to I had been to feel really homesick. And... Uh, her riding, she was obviously going to be very good at riding, and she wanted all she wanted to do was basically be a professional rider. And the place we had the horse out there, the the guy who ran it was a psychopath and maniac. And we just got, I just got fed up. I couldn't bear to see yeah. her treated like this, and by myself treated like that. And uh, and so one day I was got really cross, really, very I said, Victoria, shall we go back to Britain? And she said, Yes, mummy, let's go back to Britain. And so uh, literally I came over here, I came over to England because we obviously have to go to England because of her riding and because of um, university and everything. I came back to England and in a week I found a a yard for the horse and a house to rent and a a sixth form college. And uh, so that was all. And the house out there, we made it actually very nice. It was a nice little house we bought after Giorgio died, and that sold very, very quickly, which is unusual in Italy. I can't believe, I couldn't believe a market when I came back here. Everybody buys and sells houses. You know, ooh, I think we'll have another bedroom. Sell the house. Ooh, I think that one's. but the yeah. larger <laughs> garden. Sell the house. In Italy, if somebody buys a house, it's for life. So the market wasn't volatile there, but we did get sell the house very quickly, and then we came back at the end of two thousand. She actually, we we stayed there for the for the European Young uh, Junior Championships because she was on the team and uh, she won the European Championships and the next day she was on the lorry with horses coming back to, to England so it's great it worked out really nicely it couldn't have been better because, to it, yeah. because also she came back to Britain and you know people had heard of her name she was already a, a rider that people's heard of because she's she'd won the European Championships and so I started working in sort of nursery gardens and things and shops and whatever and she was going to sixth form college and then I stayed down working in the nursery garden. I was working until, and then I started working, actually um, doing garden, gardening for other people because I wanted to see, learn a bit more about plants beyond seeing a little plant in a pot and having potted it on and yes. do all the rest of it. And uh, I stayed on until she'd finished university because uh, she, basically she needed somebody to yeah. look yeah. after things when well, she was at university so she could get home and leap in a horse for the weekend and then rush off again and move back up here in 2005 but i built the house beforehand i built the house when we were still in italy actually so this house was basically built over a telephone which was not a very good way of building a house <laughs> everything went wrong okay. everything oh, it was a uh, uh, people still shudder when they remember uh, i used to get these frantic telephone calls from a friend saying you, see, you must come out I, I can't come over how can i come over i've got a child's got to go to school i've got to go ah. Yeah. And uh, because the builder we had uh, contracted to, we all knew he had a wee drink problem. But, uh, you know, it didn't worry me too much because I didn't need to build the house built instantly, yeah. as long as it was up. But unfortunately, the drink problem intensified while he was building this house and he just disappeared. And the, uh, nobody had been paid. Oh, I'd no. sent over money, but the, nobody had been paid and the stuff was rotting out in the garden. It was up disaster. Oh, no, that's horrible. Oh, it was a disaster. It was my own fault because I should have gone with Norrie. I only got two quotes off the island. After we'd asked for about six, and I should have gone with Norrie MacDonald. Yeah. His quote was quite a lot higher, I mean, a lot higher yeah. than this guy. But it was a false uh, economy because in the end of it, it would cost me less. That's uh, so much Norrie, happens. We
1: looked around when we were building our house as well, and we looked at different people. But we, we thought, well, we know that Nori does things you know to it's time.
0: It's done roughly it's done to time, roughly to time yeah. and done well. In fact, like, when I did Norrie. the upstairs, it was Nori, and it, he was fantastic. He couldn't have done, he couldn't have done a better job. which went really well. So the house
1: here was there a ruin here
0: previously? There was a, uh, a wee buffet. We ruined, but it's got a, it had a sort of tin roof on it, but it hadn't been inhabited since nineteen. 19- 50 or something. Okay. It was inhabited, uh, the last inhabitant, Katie Mary used to tell me about her. Mm. Katie Mary, you know, she died yeah. last year. Yeah. The house, I think, is going on the market, sadly. Yeah. Uh, she was called, she was Mary Farad. She was known as Mary Oyster. And Ooh. she was a, a strange lady who used to wander along ashore collecting all this rubbish. And apparently she slept in a box bed, but the box bed was very high up because she had all this rubbish underneath it she used to yeah. collect. So basically I think I'm a sort of reincarnation of her, all the rubbish I collect a the shore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was the oyster, good. so I think it's quite appropriate. But, uh... <laughs>
1: The garden. You've had an incredible amount of success with the garden, really. It's, well, been...
0: it's been amazing actually, because I came back gardening for other people, and that's what I intended to do: garden for other people and um, sell a few plants. But when I saw people were interested in this garden, so I put up a garden open notice, and more and more people came in, and everything sort of uh, snowballed. So I dropped everybody else and just concentrated on selling the plants I could propagate and having people coming round the garden, and I. It still amazes me that people are so appreciative of this garden. I get the most amazing comments on it. And I've been in, what, about... I've had articles in about seven magazines and various books. Did you see that book behind you, Island Gardens? Yes. I mean, not only have they given me the front cover, but they've given me a bigger spread than anybody except for Tresco inside. And I I just... I don't know. It just... My rather weird ideas uh, seem to strike a chord because you see all these photographs of gardens and wonderful herbaceous borders and everything beautifully laid out and everything wonderful and I think ooh ah but somehow this garden seems to strike a chord I don't know people just seem to love it
1: What would you say your approach to gardening is? Is it doing bits by section knowing what different plants do what? Or?
0: I just basically well I started off by putting a path making a path the whole way around and then just uh, just planted out from a path but there's no there's no great plan No? Nothing's written down, nothing was ever put down on paper, a committed to paper, just basically I want to grow that plant, where can I put it? Right, shove it in there. <laughs> I know and then all the rubbish, you know, I pick up all this, So like I do so much beach combing, the big bits go in the garden, small bits go into my crafts and the big bits go into the garden. And you know, that thing makes a nice sort of focal point and that thing makes a nice stand for a plant and that bit of driftwood will look great at the corner of that border and in they go. And then I've picked up all... Because when I was a child, there was so much old farm machinery and ironwork lying around. I mean, every fence line had two or three bedsteads in it. Yes. And when I came back, I realised they were all disappearing. So I started uh, sort of collecting them up and going around all the old farm tips and saying, can I have that bedstead out of your fence line and do you want that old cartwheel? And most people were just too glad to get rid of the stuff. And uh, I've incorporated it all into the garden. And it's amazing how many people... I mean, basically, it's probably pretty k- kitsch, I think. I think it's a bit naff. but No, I think it's
1: unique. It's its own thing. <laughs>
0: but it's amazing how many people say, oh, I do love how you've incorporated the old stuff. Or, oh, I've always wanted to do something like that. I also, my husband says, no, I really mustn't, but it looks really nice. And now he's a bit convinced. Maybe I can... Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, It's amazing how people really, uh, it really resonates with people. They really like seeing the old things. I love the old stuff. I always feel, I mean, whether it's Alva or who it is, that somebody should collect the bigger bit, because I haven't got space here to collect the big bits of farm machinery, you know, the things for digging um, up potatoes and the, yeah. the hay turners, sure all the rest are. of it. There's so much stuff rotting all over the place, and yeah. I was full of it. Yeah. Collect it all up, not paint it and make it all fancy, just put it somewhere and label it so people know what that thing was for planting turnips or whatever.
1: There's a brilliant programme by Jonathan Mead's um called uh, The Isles of Rust I don't know if you come across it no. at all um, it, it's a part of a series he did called Off-Kilter, looking at Scotland, and Jonathan Mead's an art critic uh, and artist, I think, as well. Uh, but The Isles of Rust is a way of imagining Harris and Lewis together as one island where things decay. And it's all about beauty and decay. And so there's lots of lovely shots of cars and ditches, you know, at the side of the sea, just rotting away and things. And rather than saying, isn't this horrible, he actually says, look at the beauty of this. Look at the colour and the landscape that's come from this and look at how it, it's reflected in the metal as it decays through the seasons. It's just like, oh, gosh, it's such a nice way of looking at things. I mean,
0: the old stuff, I mean, now we're, everything's plastic and plastic doesn't decay nicely, no, but the old, yeah. old car, I mean, when I was a child, everybody, all the old cars turned into hen houses and they, yeah. most of them looked pretty good, actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and in terms of gardening, are there any specific challenges that you want to to, to to explore with gardening at all? Is there one thing that's gone, you've always wanted to try and grow pineapples and <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not really. I just uh, now I've got I've got that piece of land out there, a mm-hmm. the bit where I cleared the bracken. I've, I didn't have it fenced when I got it. I just wanted to um, ensure myself against the possibility of ever having a, a building plot. Uh, I didn't fence it because I didn't think I'd be able to clear the bracken because it's such a steep slope, and the bracken was so thick there. Mm-hmm. But I've cleared the bracken. Nice. <laughs> Um, So now I'm going to plant native trees and sprinkle some basic wildflower seeds because uh, it's so sad that there's no regeneration of trees in this island because between the deer and And the the sheep uh, we just haven't to hope. uh, Trees, they spring up all over the place, all over the place, but the moment they get more than an inch high they get uh, Yes, And we've got far too many deer in this island. Not culled at all, especially around here. It's absolutely hopeless around here. In fact, uh, Ian's now fenced all, he got a grant, and his deer fenced all the field in front because I counted, I think, 87 head of deer there one morning last year. I mean, how can you, how can you run a, a farm when you've got 87 head of deer eating your your grass? So uh, I just want to get a few more native trees growing up there. It'll give me great satisfaction of my little tiny patch of proper native trees. <laughs>
1: There you go. That's some of Lucy's tales. I'm so pleased that Lucy agreed to talk to me. She was very shy about it at first, so thank you very much for your time, Lucy. It's very much appreciated. It's worth mentioning that as well as a beautiful garden, Lucy also runs a B&B at her home at Lipnick Lake. I'll put a link to her site in the blog so you can see it. As I mentioned at the start, Lucy sent some, mem- some more memories to me in an email, and they are as follows. How I loved birds, wee ones, not the ferocious raptors that are fashionable nowadays, but I had to keep quiet about it, as it was considered a bit girly. And I had two brothers, but when I went up onto the hill behind the house, I could lie in the heather and listen to a chorus of skylarks. There are hardly any of them nowadays. Too many raptors. How I used to kneel in the back seat of my mother's Morris Minor convertible with her guns and shoot rabbits and hoodies as we drove along. Imagine doing that nowadays. All the picnics we went on, Almost every week to Iona or MacKinnon's Cave or the Fossil Tree or wherever. Caves and reputedly haunted houses are great favourites. In the early days we were driven by Jimmy Sharp, who was the taxi driver in Tobermory, if my father couldn't come. He was a wonderful, very funny man with a tall, beautiful wife called Polly. Jimmy and my father got on very well, and I have a photo of them together. My father, 6 foot 6 inches, Jimmy about 5 foot tall. Then my mother got a driving licence, but was an appalling driver and the toastery bray is forever linked to the smell of burning clutch in my mind. We built many elaborate treehouses in the trees down the drive, many of which are still standing, but the house is long gone. There was so much driftwood in those days, we could add a story after a big storm with just wood collected on Calgary Beach, where you never find driftwood nowadays. Once a timber carrying boat was wrecked, and everyone built sheds and things, we built a boat shed. Kim Luscombe tells me that the original house where the Pattersons live was built with the fruits of that shipwrecked, Lugged up the hill from Rudel. Quite a feat. Another thing you never see on Calgary Beach, or any other nowadays, are glass bottles. There used to be lots, all of which needed investigating in case they contained a message. I found three. There was a man with a wooden leg called Uncle Bill, who lived in the pier house at Croig, who organised a rounders match for All and Sundry every summer, to be finished before the tide came in. And Viola Craig-Crowan from Achnadrish organised a barbecue at Calgary. She had the first television I ever saw on Mull aged 11. It was all fuzzy lines, but fascinating. We used to go out to Lunga with the Treshnish launch when they went to gather the sheep. One travelled home, squashed in with sheep with their legs tied together in the bottom of a boat. It left from Calgary Pier, in a good state in those days. Puffers used to unload coal on the beach and folk used to go down with tractors, and I think horse-drawn carts too to collect it. There was a ploughing match with horses at Calgary every year, and... How you could buy creels for lobstering from a pound from an old man who used to sit on the pier and tob making them. There you go. Thank you again to Isle of Mull Cottages for sponsoring the podcast. I really appreciate it. Their sponsorship pays for the hosting of uh, the podcast and other technical things. And I must just say, on a personal note, how good Ruben's videos of the island are. He's got a lovely way with film, and his aerial work in particular is among the most beautiful representations of the island I've ever seen. Do have a look at the website, there's loads of great videos on there with all sorts of information about the island on there. www.isleofmallcottages.com. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm also looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and are able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a sausage roll, whatever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donates tab there where you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or don't want to, I'd much rather you listened than you didn't. And on that note, there's a few people I'd like to thank. David, Caroline and Neil, thank you so much for your donations. I really appreciate it. And to those of you who have reached out to say hello, thank you again. It's great to speak to you and feel a sense of community developing around these stories. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. And that's my dog snoring in the background. <laughs> I do apologise if you can hear that. Anyway, kuyuu. you, morin tang.